So we elevate ourselves to a status of more important. My needs, my wants, my thoughts, my perspectives better than yours. When the father implemented his plan to save sinners by sending his only son, Jesus did not respond in protest Listen, because he did not consider equality with the Father something to be grasped. Even though he was totally equal to his Father, he didn't consider himself to have a voice when his Father commanded. That's what Paul's saying to us in verses 3 through 8. He's telling us to consider ourselves, or rather others, more important than ourselves. In these verses, he's exposing the source of contention between some members in the church of Philippi and calling them to regard each other as more important. If they were to do this, the contention in that church was going to end. Now, to help them be less selfish, he points them to the condescension, I might say condescension a couple times, condescension, of Christ and tells them when they have a deep understanding of exactly what Jesus did when he stepped down out of heaven that it would result in them stopping to think stopping them thinking that they were better than each other. Now, notice Paul describes the condescension of Christ in three levels in this text. First in five, five, verses 5 through 6, he describes the attitude of Christ. He didn't consider Equality with the Father, something to be grasped. Then in verses 7, after his attitude was in the right place, it produced a right action. That's the kenosis in Greek, the emptying of himself. We're not going to go into uh, what all that entails. I want us to focus on namely the third level down that Paul takes us. And notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. Being found in the appearance of the man, he humbled himself by coming obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. That's called the humiliation of Christ, is the third level of descent. They needed to understand this deeply. So I want to draw your attention to a section of Scripture that highlights how monumental Jesus' condescension was. And it's a section of Scripture that you might not expect we go. Please turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Now we're just going to kind of work through the text a little bit together. And then I promise we're going to come back to this whole point at the end. Let me pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for sending your son in the likeness of sinful men to become a propitiation for our sins and to pay the price that we owe. And Jesus, we thank you for being so willing and so humble and so kind and loving. But because you are God, the grave could not hold you, and you rose again, rising us with you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Spirit of God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, and that you would illuminate the word of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Because I cut out my last point, this morning we'll just be doing verses 1 through 7. Please read with me. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and with the train of his robe filling the temple. 
Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold of the temple, uh, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is forgiven. Beginning in verse 1, Isaiah wanted us to understand that the vision that he had of God in his temple took place in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was the king over Judah. He was a capable administrator and an able military leader. Under his reign, Judah had prospered and grown. Now, the year that he died marked a fearful time for the nation of Judah as the Assyrian Empire was growing and getting closer. Isaiah wanted us to know when he had this vision because it seems that he was nervous about the future of his country, and so he went to the temple for answers, and what he saw was the one who was really in charge. Not a king who would replace Uzziah, but the king of kings. This would be a great text to preach on if you're feeling a little uneasy with what's going on in our nation. Your eyes are too temporal. You need to stop watching so much Fox News and elevate your eyes to heaven. God is still in control. And everything that's happening is according to his sovereign purposes today, just as it was in Isaiah's day. So, let's kind of break this up into four points to give you some hooks to hang your thoughts on. Number one, the scene he saw. The scene he saw. Verse one. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, Isaiah names the one he saw. He calls him Lord. It's not the covenant name Yahweh of God, but it's rather the title of God. In Hebrew, it's Adonai. And the title means master or owner. Isaiah's freaking out. He runs to the temple, probably on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he's vexed about the future of his nation. And he begins to seek God. And then suddenly he sees the Lord, the owner. The master, the sovereign, as another translation puts it. Now, four, let me give you four observations that Isaiah made about this Lord that he saw. First, his posture. Second, his position. Third, his place. And four, his presence. First, his posture. Notice in verse 1 that the Lord is seated. He's seated because he's sovereign. He's not worried about a thing. He's in complete control. He's not up and moving about in a hurried frenzy. 
He's at perfect peace. Second, notice his position. He's lofty and exalted. He's on a throne that is high. The word lofty means to exalt to a high physical location. God is exalted in this vision to a degree that is infinitely above Isaiah. The Lord is exalted so high and so far beyond man that the best description Isaiah could give of him was his robe, notice, with the train of his robe filling the temple. This is an interesting point. Pay very close attention. If you've read this text before and you've come to this verse and thought, why, why does Isaiah start talking about the Lord? He's sitting really high up on a throne and then all of a sudden he starts talking about his robe. Listen to this. This is in a commentary uh, on Isaiah by a gentleman by the name of John Oswalt. He wrote this, quote, As in Exodus 24.10, where the pavement under God's feet is described, so here the description of God's appearance can rise no higher than the hem of his robe. It is as though words break down when one attempts to depict God himself, end quote. In other words, the reason why Isaiah sees the Lord and then starts talking about his robe It's because Isaiah couldn't elevate his words above the hem of his robe. He could only describe the very lowest part of God's being because words to describe who he saw escaped him. Now, the Apostle Paul said the same thing. He described his experience of being caught up into the third level of heaven. The third level of heaven is the place where God dwells. It's the holy of holies. We have a heaven. We look up. We see the sky. Then outside of our atmosphere, there's space. That's the second heaven. And then the third heaven is where God dwells. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. And I heard inexpressible words, listen to this, which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul's like, I got up there, I saw him, but I can't tell you what I saw because God has not permitted man to talk about it. Isaiah said the same thing. Isaiah just can go so far as describing the hem of his robe. And I'm so sorry, I got to pause here and say this. You probably heard me say this before, but I got to say this again. Throw away those books that like heaven is for real. Where little kids uh, have a vocabulary that's robust enough to describe what they saw in the heavenlies. When an apostle says he's not even permitted to speak about it, and a prophet who was there can't even speak about it. To describe the the, the, the holy of holies of God, listen, it's blasphemy. Because it's to bring him down and make him something less than he is. Do not participate in the blasphemy of people who take our God who dwells in unapproachable light and try to make him fit into words that Americans can understand. That is blasphemy. Our God is higher than that. He's lofty and exalted, seated on a throne. He defies description apart from the description of himself in the person of his son. Number three, 
his place. His place. Notice he was in the temple with the train of his robe filling the temple. This Lord was in the temple because he is the focal point of all worship. And so no other place is suiting for him. There's no other suitable place for the one who should receive all worship. And then finally, number four, his presence. Notice, and his robe filled the temple. Again, his robe is the best explanation Isaiah could give. And so to say that his robe is filling the temple is to say that God was filling the temple. The word filling in Hebrew means to be full. And so to So the point is that God is dominating the place. He is the supreme focus. The idea here is this. Isaiah gets up there. He's in the throne room of God. And the presence of God is so thick. God is the dominating presence that commands all attention. This is so important to understand. Because this is a clear glimpse into the dominating thickness of God in heaven. If you think that going to heaven is you getting on some island that's a permanent place of retirement, you are deeply confused. The presence of our God is so thick that it fills the place. You see, that's really the point of heaven for the true believer, isn't it? I used to surf a lot. And so I was really depressed when I read in Revelation that there's no oceans in heaven. Then I realized how ridiculous that was when my God was there. That's the point. We're longing for him. And we love him who we do not see now. And we can't wait to be with him. God is the supreme focus of heaven. And for the Christian, there should be nothing more interesting than our Lord. We desire heaven because we desire him not just the stuff that he gives. Do you know him to that degree? Where it is him that you're longing for, it's him that you're seeking when you come in to the worship center, that it's him you're grabbing for when you open the Bible, that it's him you're pressing into when you pray? Secondly, Isaiah saw the Lord. Number two, he saw the seraphim. The seraphim. Notice verse two. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. The word seraphim comes from a Hebrew word, seraph, and it means fiery. These were angels that had six wings, and they were fiery. What does that mean? Well, I just take it to mean what it means. It's probably a designation of the way that they looked. They probably looked something like nuclear-powered helicopters. They were fiery. That was a joke, all right? My junior hires will like that more than you guys. They were hovering in place. And they were probably something that looked like a fire, a flame of fire in their body. Now, notice the description of the seraphim. There's several types of angels, angelos, messengers in the Bible. Seraphim is one of them. Seraphim are the ones that are hovering around the throne. Notice they have six wings. Two of those wings 
are covering their face. Two of those wings are being used to fly, and two of their wings are wrapping around their feet. So just kind of try to imagine this. There's six sets of wings, three on each side of my body. Two of the wings are wrapping around my legs, covering my feet. The two top ones are wrapping around, covering my face. And then my chest is exposed, my heart is exposed, and their wings are flapping, and they're hovering. Now, notice the position of their wings. It's very significant because the position of the seraphim are making a statement about the one who sits on the throne. First of all, why are their wings covering their face? Answer, because no one can see God and live. The seraphim were built by God, get this, with a built-in protection against his holiness. And so God in his mercy and his grace gave them wings to protect themselves from the majesty of his splendor. So they covered their face. Now, with the other two, they were what? Flying. Why were they flying? Because no one can stand in God's presence and live. Remember Moses meeting Yahweh at the burning bush? Take off your sandals for this is holy ground. And Isaiah is going to say, woe is me. I'm standing. I'm seeing. And... uh, and I haven't been obedient. I'm not like the seraphim. Isaiah is going to compare himself to these angels and come to the conclusion that he deserves judgment. The other pair, he covers his feet, their feet, because it protects their service. It symbolizes that they only did what God wanted them to do. It has to do with the direction that they go. Two wings protected what they saw. Two wings protected their presence, and two wings protected their service. Point number two, the sound he heard. The sound he heard. In verse three, Isaiah now shifts from telling us what he saw to what he heard, getting, a, getting all of our senses engaged here. And one called out to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at his voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. First, let's look at the volume. Notice the word in verse 3, called. Called is a Hebrew word that means to shout loudly. And then notice down in verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold of the temple uh, and the And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out. So what was their volume? It was so loud, the entire building was shaking. When I do this to the kids, I usually yell, holy, 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 as loud as I can to give you a sense. So if you think that there's quiet tranquility around the throne room of God, you're missing it. It's not. It's worship that is so overpowering that it shakes the building. That's their volume. But notice the direction of the sound. It says, they called out to one another. This was not monodirectional. Maybe Doug and Scott, you can help me out with my terminology later. But it's not like the stage where there's speakers above me and it's pointed in your direction. So if you were seated behind me, you wouldn't be able to hear as well because there was no amplification pointed your way. In the throne room of God, 
there's this booming sound, multi-directional, going back and forth to all these different seraphim who were surrounding his throne. There was not a place in the throne room that you could go to get relief from the deafening sound of the worship. Just imagine your senses. Put yourself into the shoes of Isaiah as he's standing there before God. We looked at the volume, the direction. Now notice the content of the sound. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy. This is an interesting point. In the Hebrew language, to repeat a word three times is to show its importance and its priority. To repeat it three times was to elevate it as high as it could be elevated. In his classic work, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul writes this. Listen to this. The Bible never says love, 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 or mercy, 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 or God is wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. In the Hebrew language, to elevate something to the third degree is to give it supreme importance. In the Bible, the only, listen to this, the only attribute of God that is elevated to the third degree is his what? Holiness. But in American Christianity, what what attribute of God do we elevate above all others? Love. Did you know that's unbiblical? Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible elevate the love of God above his holiness. In fact, it's the other way around. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God is merciful. God is loving. God is a God of justice. God is a wrathful God. But he holds all of his attributes in perfect harmony. But his word, that according to the Psalms, that he elevates above himself, tells us that the dominating attribute of him is his holiness. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you think about God, what do you first think? He's holy. This experience had a total paradigm change for Isaiah. By the way, let me just make a side note. You can never fully understand the love of God until you understand it underneath his holiness. Because then his love will only be something you understand on a human level. But to grasp his love for us in light of his holiness is what makes grace explode. Finally, the conclusion of what they were saying. What is the conclusion we see about the seraphim? Their names referred to God's holiness, fire. Their position pointed to God's holiness. Their look showed the power of God's holiness. And their voice elevated the supremacy of God's holiness. Point number three. By this point, you should probably be asking yourself, what does this have to do with us getting along with one another and the condescension of Christ? Hold on. 
We're almost there. Point number three, the statement he exclaimed. The statement he exclaimed. After seeing all this in verse 5, finally Isaiah's voice bursts forth and he can only get out of his mouth, woe is me, for I am ruined. Or I am undone, as the King James Version says. Woe is a pronunciation of judgment. It's a curse of judgment. Isaiah responded to seeing the Lord by pronouncing, get this, judgment on himself. Woe is me. Now, what's interesting about that is when you look at Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, God is telling Isaiah to prophesy and to pronounce judgment on the nation. And so in chapter 5 in particular, Isaiah gives a series of woes against the nation. And then all of a sudden, Isaiah gets a glimpse of the Lord and the woes turn where? Inward. Isn't that what happens with us? We're busy judging each other and pointing out issues. And then we see the Lord. And his majesty so overtakes us that those fingers point inward. He pronounced judgment on himself. Today we hear people telling us, don't judge me. I hear that all the time in the church, unfortunately. And the truth is, we don't want to be judged. We fight it. But Jesus says that apart from him, you're already in a state of judgment. Jesus says, who he who believes in me is not judged, but he who does not believe in him has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John three eighteen. Listen, we need forgiveness. We need a Savior. Because of how awesome he is, we need to be saved from him. Notice that's what Isaiah is saying. Uh-oh. God's going to kill me. That's what he's saying. The seraphim are protected, and I'm sitting here exposed. Furthermore, I'm dirty. Notice what he says next. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king of the Lord of hosts. Isaiah gives three reasons for his pronunciation of judgment. His person, his people, and his proximity. His person, his people, and his proximity. Now, for the sake of time, I wish I could spend more time here, but let's just look at these very quickly. First of all, his person. Because I am a man of unclean lips, unclean lips, my mouth is not being used like the mouth of the seraphim. Why would you stand in the presence of God and say, I got a dirty mouth? Maybe you're thinking, well, because Isaiah, you know, might have slipped up every now and again, said a bad word. That's not what he means. I think that the idea here is not so much that Isaiah used bad words, listen, get this, but that he didn't use the good words like the angels were using. It wasn't so much the fact that he was using bad words, but that he wasn't using his God-given mouth to do with it what the seraphim were doing with theirs. And he's looking at them, and he's looking at the throne, he's looking at them, he's looking at the throne, and he thinks, uh-oh. But also, his people... Or his heritage. Notice, I live among a people of unclean lips. 
He had an unholy heritage. I think that the point of this verse, particularly the first part of verse 5 and the second part here, is that Isaiah is making the point with an economy of words that not only has he inherited a sinful nature, I am a man of unclean lips, but also he's inherited the guilt of sin. This is uh, the doctrine of imputed sin and original sin. And it's, Paul really explains beautifully in Romans chapter 5. I've talked about that many times from this pulpit. But I think it's a, it's a statement of his comprehensive sinfulness. It's his inward problem. But also he now becomes a representative of his nation standing before God because of his heritage. He's inherited a bad nature and he's inherited the guilt that is rightly due from his people. He's now the representative head standing before God. He should be judged because of his person, because of his people, and then finally his proximity. Look what it says. For my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Uh Uh-oh. I'm seeing something I'm not supposed to see and live. And then finally, my fourth point, I'm making good time, all right. Pastor Neil's not here, but he'd be proud of me. (laughs) The salvation he received. The salvation he received. I want to give you two points on this that's going to lead us to our conclusion. First of all, the salvation he received was passive and responsive. Can write that down. We're going to kind of pick that apart a little bit. Passive and responsive. And then secondly, the salvation that he receives was freeing and forgiving. Freeing and forgiving. First of all, passive and responsive. Notice verse 6 and 7. The one of the, then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Let me make just a couple comments about the scene really quickly here. So Isaiah's now in the throne room, and there's a, a throne, there's these angels, and then off of the throne, we're now told that there's an altar. And upon that altar, there is a sacrifice, and that sacrifice has been received by God. It's smoldering. Uh, it's to the point where now it's coals, and an angel flies down. By the way, just think about this for a minute. I should have put this in my notes, so I say this next service. The only time the angels interrupt their worship is to appropriate the grace of God. That's an incredible thought. Worship stopped in the throne room to give him grace. Now the contents here, a lot of commentators, myself included, believe this was the day of Yom Kippur. It's the day of atonement and Without going into great detail, the Day of Atonement was a a day that was uh, instituted by God. It was a feast of Israel, and it was an event that happened once a year. And the great high priest, it was the only day during the year where the high priest, not the great high priest, that's Jesus, but the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies. You go from the outer court of the tabernacle to the holy place, and then finally to the third place, which is the Holy of Holies. And he'd go into the Holy of Holies. Uh, First, he'd go in um, with special garments, and he'd make sacrifice for himself. He'd come back out, get new garments on, and he'd make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Then, after he did that, he would go out to a third animal 
So the first animal that he sacrificed was for himself. It was a, a bull. Then he took two goats. He killed one goat, put it on the altar. Then he took another goat, and he took blood from the goat that they killed, and he put it on the other goat, and they sent the goat away out of the camp. It was called the scapegoat. William Tyndale was the one who came up with that terminology. It's called the scapegoat. They hit the goat, and the goat would run out of the camp. Now, the reason they did this is because it symbolized um, what God does in substitutionary atonement. Atonement is the price that is paid for our sin. We believe as Christians that the price that is paid for our sin is substitutionary, meaning that we don't sacrifice ourselves. Something is sacrificed in our place, namely Christ. But before Christ came, God implemented a series of substitutionary uh, sacrificial atonements to point them forward to the Messiah who would come and do that very thing. Now, on the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest would get together, place all the sins of the people on uh, the goat that would run away. And so that would symbolize, now here's why I believe Isaiah was in the temple on the Day of Atonement, because of what's said in verse 7, really quickly. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is what? Taken away and your sin is what? Forgiven. Those two goats represented each of those. This is a powerful thing. Listen, Christian, this is so important. In your salvation, God does not just forgive your sin. He takes it away. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. So not only does he grant you forgiveness, but he also removes the problem. And he gives you a new heart and a new life. That's what the Day of Atonement was symbolizing. So notice quickly that his, the salvation he received was both passive and responsive. Notice passive. Isaiah did not approach God. He would not have dared to move a hair closer to the throne. That is why the seraphim flew to him. And might I say, we do not move toward God. He moves towards us. And if you think that you move toward God, you have a really small view of his holiness. Could you imagine Isaiah thinking that he was going to take a single step closer? He was ruined where he is. He wasn't getting any closer. God is not approachable. Now hang with me before you boo me off as a heretic. He who is blessed and sovereign only, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and who dwells, listen to this, in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. Paul said that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Because God is not approachable, listen, he in his mercy and grace approaches us. I'm not saying there's no access to God, but I am saying when it comes to the initiation of contact, who did it? That's why John says in 1 John, listen to this, by this, the love of God has manifested in us, that God has sent Listen, that God has what? Please, church, say sent. His only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Did you run to heaven or did the father send the son from heaven? He sent the son and the son came. Keep that thought and follow me. 
It's not only passive, but it's also responsive. Does that mean that we don't respond? No, we absolutely have to respond to the grace of God. And there's a picture of Isaiah's response to the grace of God when after receiving forgiveness, he says, the Lord has a conversation. Verse eight, really quickly. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Elohim, plural, the Trinity, who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I, total surrender. A response is required. Isaiah responded. But it's also, listen, notice the result of the salvation that he received. It's both, and I already alluded to it, freeing and forgiving. Isaiah believed in substitutionary atonement. He was probably in the temple on the day of Yom Kippur when he saw this vision. The salvation that he got was both freeing. His sin was taken away. But it was also forgiven. Why is that important? Forgiveness deals with your guilt. Freeing deals with your living. And the grace of God in his son results in a guilt-free conscience because of the sacrifice of Christ. But also he removes our sins so that we're now free to serve and to say, here am I, send me. Okay. What does all this have to do with Jesus? In closing... Turn with me to John chapter 12. Please begin reading with me in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, for he blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and heal them. Those two quotes are quotes from the second half of Isaiah 6 that we did not read. Now listen to what John says next. Get this. These things Isaiah said because he saw his what? The glory, uh, and he spoke of who? Who was the one sitting on the throne? Jesus. The pre-incarnate Christ before he stepped down out of heaven. In Revelation 1, we see the post-incarnate Christ as he is seated now. In Isaiah 6, we see the form he was in before he took on flesh. Now, follow me just for a moment. Now, the revelation of God is progressive, meaning God reveals his plan of redemption progressively over time. At the time that Isaiah saw the vision, Isaiah understood substitutionary atonement. He understood that he needed forgiveness. He, needed, he understood that a sacrifice other than himself had to be given. But because we live in the age of the church, we know more than Isaiah knew. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter, 
uh, verses 10 through 13, that the prophets were trying to figure out who the Messiah would be. We now know the complete revelation is that the Savior is Christ. We know more than he did. And so we now know, because of what was given through the Apostle John, that the one who actually sat on the throne was the Savior. Now think about this. Let's just imagine the scene we just read. And maybe you'll give me the liberty to change the story a bit. Imagine Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees the seraphim. And then all of a sudden, there's silence. And the Lord that's on the throne stands up. And he begins to walk down off of his throne. Isaiah's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he's coming for me. And he walks right past Isaiah, and he lays down on the altar. Church, if Jesus got off that throne, you can get off yours. Brothers and sisters, let us get off our high thrones and let us consider ourselves more important than one another. Let's pray. Amazing grace. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Father, we thank you for your grace. It's just unimaginable that the sacrifice would be the very one who sat on the throne. Lord, I pray that when we see the extent of your service, and your humility and humiliation. That you would help us to stop considering ourselves better than each other. I want to be like Jesus.